Section six of Charles the Second by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter one. Prince of Wales. Part six. It was not to be expected that the outburst of grief which followed the news should last long. The tie between father and son could never have been close. Charles I was an anxious but scarcely a fond parent. All intimacy with his son had been given up when the boy was eight years of age, and the turmoil of war and the ceremony of royalty had prevented any reforming of the bond. For three years, full of distractions which would efface any lively recollections, they had not met. Under such circumstances it is difficult to blame him if the past was soon obscured by the possession of kingship and by the prospect of a career of adventure more exciting than anything he had hitherto experienced the tragedy affected him and for the time deeply but not as it affected his father's old counsellors and friends the horror with which it struck them made them well-nigh inarticulate it was murder murder most foul and most unnatural a band of wicked men had done to death more than their king more than a good and gracious master and a man of pure and pious life in his person they had violated the sacredness of monarchy the sacredness of the church the laws and liberties of england everything for which his servants had sacrificed home friends children and estates and for which they had been at any moment willing to give their lives this drumhead court-martial was not the act of the people of england it was not an execution or an incident of warfare it was murder which cried for vengeance my soul abhors the thought of it of which no age ever heard the like says nicholas grenville trusted that god will revenge it on the heads of the damned authors and contrivers of it through all distractions wrote hatton i must enforce myself to action when it may conduce to revenge the blood of that royal and glorious martyr upon those base and inhuman murderers it is not until the intensity of this feeling is realized that we cease to wonder that the best and noblest of charles's followers hyde the type of integrity ormond framed to none but gallant ends were without shame cognizant of plots to assassinate cromwell or any such as dorislaus who were associated with him in the deed there was no chance of bringing the murderers to trial even such a mockery of trial as that which had been granted to their victim there was no law by which these bloody reigning villains could be touched to those who mourned for the slain king and all that he stood for the destroying by whatever means of cromwell and all who had acted with him in the inexpiable crime would be a righteous act the fact that charles was away from his mother's direct influence at the moment of his nominal accession to the throne enabled hyde to secure the selection of a privy council composed of the old friends of charles i with the exception of long who was in henrietta's interest the pressing question before them was that of the king's immediate movements 
the nervous anxiety of the states to avoid provoking Cromwell, forbade any prolonged stay in Holland, especially after the murder of Doroslaus, the agent of the Commonwealth with the states, by some cavalier bravos, while Charles was resolved not to imperil his newly tasted liberty by yielding to his mother's urgent desire that he would join her in Paris. In this he was, of course, supported by all of Hyde's way of thinking. I hold, said Lord Hatton from Paris, Lord German's counsels and designs as pernicious and destructive as ever, and his power as vast and exorbitant. His present endeavour is to tie up the king as much as ever his father was to the counsel of the queen. Moreover, Hatton argued, it was quite possible that in order to gain the support of the commonwealth against the frondeur, the court might urge his renunciation of his title or make their market of him with the English. There remained once more as a refuge Scotland and Ireland, and there was a choice of three policies, a royalist movement in England, a Catholic movement in Ireland, and a covenanting movement in Scotland. All tidings made it clear that the first of these was for the time impossible. Charles's personal inclination was for Ireland, whither, after granting a full indemnity to the Irish rebels, he had, on January 22nd, received an invitation from Ormond, and where he knew he should find Rupert with the fleet. Subject to the retention of Scottish goodwill, this course was supported by the Queen. Scotland itself was not a fit place unless there was entire union with an absolute and unlimited declaration from them to join with all others of what nation or condition soever to revenge the murder of His Majesty of ever-blessed memory. Unless, that is, Scotch Covenanters would join with Irish Catholics and English Erastians and sectaries, unless vinegar would mix with oil. The Scots soon made their terms clear. On February 7th, Charles had been proclaimed king in Edinburgh, but before being admitted he was to give satisfaction concerning religion, the union of the kingdoms, and the good and peace of Scotland, according to the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant, the damnable covenant in Hyde's brief anathema. If his majesty, said Bailey, may be moved to join with us in this one point, he will have all Scotland ready to sacrifice their lives for his service. If he refuse or shift this duty, his best and most useful friends, both here and elsewhere, will be cast into inextricable labyrinths, we fear for the ruin of us all. On February 20th, Sir Joseph Douglas brought an offer from Argyle to send commissioners to arrange for the king's reception in Scotland on condition of his good behaviour, strict observance of the covenant, and his entertaining no other persons about him, but such as were godly men and faithful to that obligation. The covenanting Scots were anxious, as the engagers had been, for the prestige of his presence since their proclamation of the king had made war certain with the hated sectaries of England. But had an angel from heaven appeared to lead their armies, and had he refused the covenant, 
there would have been a scant following among those for whom all other attributes of god were obscured by the certainty that he was the prime covenanter charles was not yet reduced to submit himself to the sour tyrannies of the kirk there were other scotchmen besides argyle and his zealots his little court was crowded with the ostracized and banished engagers hamilton lauderdale and many others as well as with pure royalists like napier and sinclair thither too came montrose to confer in secret with hyde montrose the one purely heroic figure of the time on february twenty second charles privately created him lieutenant-governor of scotland and captain-general of all forces there or brought there out of england or ireland that is at the same moment that he refused to close with argyle he gave his approval to a purely royalist and anti-covenant undertaking in covenanting scotland on march twenty seventh the commissioners arrived charles was in no hurry to meet them and was taken up by his easter devotions for some days on april eleventh however the long contest fairly began between unyielding kirk and debonair prince cassillis and robert bailey addressed him for the parliament and kirk respectively he was asked to take the covenants to assent to acts of parliament imposing them on england and ireland and to dismiss montrose every day wrote his cousin the princess sophia they bring some new proposition to the king full of importunity they would not have him keep any honest man about him playing the double game which soon became familiar charles put off the commissioners on the ground that he expected all their propositions together while he secretly empowered montrose to treat with foreign kings and states for help a few days later he was presented with a volume of light reading the national covenant the solemn league and covenant the confession of faith the directory and other presbyterian gospels bound together in a book so handsome as we could get them when however the commissioners requested another interview charles was abroad hunting growing weary of these delays they demanded a final answer on may first after consultation with montrose hamilton and lauderdale the king replied on the nineteenth that he would accept the covenants for scotland only the actual meaning of this appears in hyde's paraphrase to the king of spain he deferred the thought of going himself in person into scotland till the affections of that people be reformed or reduced which he doubts not will shortly be done by the marquis of montrose the commissioners returned to scotland in disappointment and anger and on the day on which he gave his reply charles named montrose admiral of scotland but bailey though baffled for the time was of good comfort when the rotten reed of ireland is broken he will think better of our propositions possessing a good deal of the milk of human kindness bailey had been captivated by charles of a very sweet and courteous disposition it were all the pities in the world but he were in good company and again he is one of the most gentle innocent well-inclined princes so far as yet appears that lives in the world a trim person and of a manly carriage understands pretty well speaks not much would god he were amongst us 
and while lamenting that he is firm to the tenets his education and company has planted in him bailey declares that if god would send him among us without some of his present counsellors i think he would make by god's blessing as good a king as britain saw these hundred years hatton from another point of view writes almost at the same time of his judgment not inferior to the sweetness of his disposition though the latter as yet doth too much prevail to the apprehension of those who do not thoroughly know the former with his more official advisers also charles was acquiring a good character nicholas speaks of his insight into business of his steadfastness when he had once formed a good resolution and of that discernment of men which was so well expressed in later years where men had chinks he would see through them as soon as any one about him hyde somewhat less expansively describes him as being as hopeful for virtue and judgment as you can expect from one of his years in education meanwhile the course of the negotiation with the scots and the probability that it would be necessary to renew it had led to the departure of hyde from the court his uncompromising opposition to all covenanting schemes whether from kirk or engagers had caused a deadlock to the council which could only be removed by his absence at the suggestion of the prince of orange he was therefore sent with his old friend lord coddington a catholic and a favourite at madrid to see if the sorely needed funds could be procured from the court of spain hyde was deeply hurt and pointedly asked the king whether the mission had been manufactured in order to get rid of him he had also to bear the reproaches of his friends sir e hyde says nicholas would fain justify his going into spain but it is not in the wit of man to do it god forgive him the result was apparent at once the very next day the scots had a better day of it at council than at any time before hyde and coddington were instructed to promise the spanish court that charles would when restored protect the catholics and try to obtain a parliamentary repeal of the penal laws and to offer as security for a loan the goods of his english subjects in spain they were to endeavour to secure peace between france and spain when charles might fairly hope for the combined help of the two crowns and to gain the goodwill of the pope's nuncio and through him of the pope himself to whom a special agent robert meynell was sent with similar promises and requests charles was indeed at his wit's end for money the small supplies which montrose had been able to obtain were absorbed in the preparations of his projected expedition the dutch refused a request for ships and an advance of twenty thousand pounds the prince of orange had done all he could a small loan only was obtained by culpepper from the czar rupert's prizes were insignificant from france and her distractions nothing was to be had the queen offered to sell her pawned jewels but as hyde pointed out this was not of much use since it would cost more to get them out of pawn than could be raised strange items of help indeed reached henrietta the old princess of conde a former lover of her father sent an extraordinarily fat mutton to the queen as a kind of monster for the fatness of it and in the belly of the sheep 
were two thousand crowns but charles's debts soon amounted to thirty thousand pounds and farther stay in holland was useless in june he went to brussels cursing the hollanders of whom there cannot be ill enough spoken in order from thence to back his envoy's appeals at madrid but all such appeals were useless spain had no money to spare and was very much afraid of those powerful devils at westminster she was indignant because rupert was selling his prizes in the hostile territory of portugal she was at war with france and charles was about to join his mother on french soil so long as rupert was hovering on her coasts hyde and coddington were well treated but this ceased when blake came in pursuit and by christmas they saw no chance of bread for a month longer they lingered on throughout sixteen fifty in wretched plight as did meynell in rome under alternate hope and despair simply because they had not money to pay for their return in december it was intimated to them that their continued official presence was disagreeable coddington was allowed to stay and to die in retirement in spain hyde supplied with a little money by the spanish court left in march sixteen fifty one and after a visit to the queen at paris reached antwerp in november End of section six